0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. If you like baseball, as I do, or sports movies in general, you may have seen Moneyball, which stars Brad Pitt as Billy Bean, the general manager of the Oakland A's. Now, Moneyball was based upon a book of the same name by writer Michael Lewis, uh, the movie to a degree, but the the book more so, goes into detail about Billy Bean's career as a player. Coming out of high school, he was one of the, the, uh, the highest rated amateur prospects in the country, considered what's known as a, a five-tool player. Now, five-tool players are guys who run well, field well, hit for average, hit for power, and have a good throwing arm. And they don't come along all that often. Uh, historically, think of Mickey Mantle or or Willie Mays or nowadays Bryce Harper or uh, Mike Trout would be good examples. So Billy Bean was a first-round draft pick in 1980 and decided to forego a baseball scholarship offered by Stanford to play professionally. When the New York Mets drafted him, they thought that they had a can't-miss prospect. But the thing is, uh, after spending about 10 years playing professionally Billy Bean never could quite make it at the major league level. He had a a few brief stops in the big leagues, but he never became the all-star that all the scouts predicted. And of course, that's really not all that unusual of a story. Uh, Highly thought of prospects end up not panning out all the time, especially in baseball. What makes Billy Bean's story noteworthy is that after deciding to retire as a player, He became one of the most respected and successful general managers in baseball. And that was because he adopted a a new innovative approach to evaluating talent that changed the way that front offices operated around the league. Now, if you're wondering where I'm going with this, I see George McClellan as being similar to Billy Bean in that going into the Civil War, McClellan was the equivalent of a five-tool prospect. He had demonstrated physical courage under fire in Mexico, uh, a first-rate intellect at West Point and later in the Army, and a real knack for, uh, you know, organizational leadership and and logistics uh, during his time as a railroad executive. His reputation and his experience, notwithstanding his young age, made him invaluable. Within a few weeks of the war breaking out, the governors of Pennsylvania, New York, and Ohio were all prepared to offer him overall command of their state's volunteers. Now, all things being equal, Mack would have preferred to take command in his home state of Pennsylvania. But as it turns out, he didn't find out that the offer was on the table until he had already accepted the command in Ohio, uh, where he'd been living at the time. So on April 23, 1861, he was made a Major General of Volunteers which is a pretty impressive rank to start out at, especially considering he had resigned from the regular army as a captain. And it's almost like a can't-miss baseball prospect, getting promoted to the majors before he's even proven that he could hit a double A. But McClellan showed no signs that he was in over his head. Brigadier General Jacob Cox remembered uh, of Mac at the time, quote, Personally, he was a very charming man, and his manner of doing business impressed everyone with the belief that he knew what he was about, unquote. And that was a big part of his appeal. The way he carried himself just screamed competence. Shelby Foote describes the gravitas that the, the still young McClellan brought to the table when he took command. Foote writes, quote, At 34, Major General George Brinton McClellan, commanding the Ohio Volunteers, had earned both a military and a business reputation in the 15 years since his graduation near the top of his academy class. As a distinguished Mexican War soldier, official observer of the Crimean War, designer of the McClellan saddle, superintendent of the Illinois Central and president of the Ohio and Mississippi railroads, unquote. So, yeah, that sounds like a five-tool prospect to me. And here's the thing. Uh, early on, Max showed several of the tools necessary to be a top-notch general. He, he inspired his men. He organized and trained them, got them into good fighting shape. He set up efficient logistics and communications networks. But just as in baseball, one weakness, one missing tool can prevent an otherwise talented player from being successful. The minor leagues are, are full of sure thing draft picks that never quite learn how to hit a, a big league curveball, you know. So, too, for a Civil War general, one missing tool would prevent ultimate success. And for Mac, that missing tool was decisiveness in battle. As we'll see in today's show, he seems to have had really all the tools necessary to be a, a, a general manager. He could build the army, prepare it, inspire it. He just didn't seem to have what might just be the most important tool of all. And that would be the ability to lead it to victory on the battlefield. Hello and welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray. This is part two of our series on Major General George Brinton McClellan. After today, we'll have one more show on McClellan before we move on to our next portrait. And uh, I'm not entirely sure who that's going to be yet. Fortunately, there's a wealth of interesting options still to choose from. Uh, Before we get going, I wanted to announce that the guest episode of Twilight Histories that I mentioned last time is now up on the Twilight Histories feed. So if you're interested in checking out a Uh, Civil War-based alternate history story, and I realize that's not everybody's cup of tea. But if it's yours, I encourage you to give it a listen. Uh, Jordan Harbour at Twilight Histories um, really did a fantastic job with uh, adding in the sound effects and the background music and so forth, and I'm really happy with how it turned out. If anyone has any questions or comments about Portraits of Blue and Gray, you can reach me at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com, with gray spelled with an E. I really do love getting listener emails, so thank you to those of you who have emailed. Uh, For anyone out there who has a few spare minutes on your hands, please rate and review the show on iTunes or uh, wherever you get it that takes ratings. As always, thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. When President Abraham Lincoln put out the call for volunteers in the spring of 1861, the state of Ohio answered enthusiastically. He had asked Ohio for 10,000 men, enough to fill out about 13 regiments. Ohio responded with enough men for 22. But they were missing two things, weapons and training. As their commander, General George McClellan, noted, the material is superb, but has no organization or discipline. And fixing that was McClellan's job. And, as it turns out, he was up to the task. They began drilling at Fort Denison in Cincinnati, and before long, McClellan had the men organized and confident. The New York Tribune reported that Mack, quote, "...is personally extremely popular. Army officers and men, and everybody, seem to have entire faith in him." Unquote. He gave off an aura of confidence and self-possession as he rode out among the men uh, atop the big, beautiful warhorse named Daniel Webster, that had been a gift to him from several local businessmen uh, when he had resigned from the railroad to restart his military career. And while in camp in Cincinnati, he received a call from fellow West Pointer Ulysses Grant, who was hoping to get a job on Mac's staff. Grant had resigned from the regular army a few years earlier uh, after being caught drinking on the job. And there's some dispute over what exactly happened there that caused Grant to resign, But we're not going to go into it now. If you want to know a little bit more about it, I would suggest that you check out our series on Ulysses Grant. I think it's in part one. But anyway, Grant was looking to redeem himself um, now that trained officers were in short supply. But unfortunately, it didn't work out the way that he had hoped. Grant remembered it like this, quote, McClellan never acknowledged my call. And of course, after he knew I had been in his headquarters, I was bound to await his acknowledgment. Unquote. Now, Grant thought that McClellan had blown him off, but Mack remembered it differently. He, he would later say that he had not been in his, in his headquarters at the time, though it may be that uh, McClellan, who was, was having some difficulty filling out his staff due to the shortage of trained officers, uh, many of whom had recently joined the rebellion, so it may be that Mac did not want Grant with his, his reputation as a heavy drinker on his staff. As we all know, though, it wouldn't take long for Grant to find work elsewhere. Turning back to Mack, true to his nature, it it didn't take him long to start thinking big. And on April 27th, he sent a a grand proposal to Winfield Scott, the general in chief of all Union forces. Mack was suggesting that the Union troops take control of the Ohio River, uh, drive through West Virginia, and hit Richmond from the west. The route he was suggesting is essentially the modern Interstate 64, running between Huntington and Charleston, West Virginia, uh, uh, to Richmond. Scott presented the plan to Lincoln, but he recommended against it. He he thought that the logistics would be too difficult because there were essentially no passable waterways or uh, railroads on the route, and it would require moving the Army through the mountains. Besides, Scott had something else in mind. Uh, what came to be known as the Anaconda Plan, constricting Southern trade through a naval blockade and cutting it in half by securing the Mississippi. And Scott, who said he had, quote, great confidence in McClellan's intelligence, zeal, science, and energy, unquote, uh, saw Mack as likely to bear an important, if not the principal part, in this great expedition. Now, the great expedition that Scott was referring to was the trip down the Mississippi River. Now, Scott's plan was ridiculed in the press, but it ended up being a huge part of the eventual Union victory. Uh, The big problem with Scott's plan, uh, as the press saw it anyway, was that it was gonna take too long. The public wanted a big climactic battle, you know, an Austerlitz or a Waterloo type thing. And Scott correctly predicted that, that they wouldn't have the patience for his methodical design. And uh, writing back to Scott, Mack agreed, arguing that the public would resist the necessary delay. And of course, necessary delay would come to be one of the defining features of McClellan's command over the course of the war. Winfield Scott seems to, at that point anyway, have genuinely liked George McClellan, and he saw him as a, a, a true asset to the Union cause. So in May of 1861, he promoted him to major general in the regular army and put him in command of the Department of the Ohio, which included the states of Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois, uh, along with Western Virginia and parts of Maryland. Uh, So here was McClellan, only 34 still, and he was essentially the second highest ranking Union general behind only Winfield Scott himself. Um, Mack would try to prove himself worthy of the lofty rank and responsibility. In late May, when he set out to clear rebel forces out of predominantly union-loyal Western Virginia, it, it was the perfect stage to announce his entry into the war. Uh, Shelby Foote describes the situation, quote, 8,000 loyal troops against 4,000 rebels. In an area where the people wanted no part of secession, it was an ideal setting for the emergence of a national hero. And such a hero soon appeared, unquote. Mack sent four regiments into what is now uh, north-central West Virginia in in response to rebel attempts to seize the B&O railroad there. He announced to the locals that he was there to lift from them, quote, the yoke of the traitorous conspiracy dignified by the name of the Southern Confederacy, unquote. And he also announced that he had no intention of interfering with the locals' uh, property, And by property, he meant slaves. Now, slavery wasn't uh, nearly as common in West Virginia as in other areas of the South, uh, which was a big part of why the area stayed loyal. Um, So that statement probably didn't mean a whole lot to the locals, but it did catch the attention of the abolitionist Republicans in Washington, who were not at all pleased with McClellan's foray into politics. But for McClellan, he really did want to fight the war with as little damage to non-combatants and private property, all private property, as possible. And that was more or less the official stance early on, but it was going to change a lot. Mack's feelings on the subject, though, never did change. He remained steadfast throughout the war that the key to restoring the Union was winning the Southerners' hearts and minds, and to do that, you had to fight like a gentleman. And that position played well in nearby Kentucky, which was still undecided, uh, having declared itself neutral. And uh, it was about to vote on the question. Lincoln saw retaining Kentucky as, as hugely important to the war effort. He wrote, quote, I think to lose Kentucky is nearly the same as to lose the whole game. Kentucky gone. We cannot hold Missouri nor Maryland. These all against us and the job on our hands is too large for us. We would as well consent to separation at once including the surrender of this capital unquote. so mac had troops ready on the border but essentially he respected kentucky's declared neutrality confederate general leonidas polk on the other hand invaded the commonwealth for the purpose of securing it for the confederacy in part uh, this resulted in a union propaganda victory in kentucky and it remained more or less pro-union throughout the war Returning now to West Virginia, though, on June 3, 1861, the rebel forces, which Mack had deployed uh, the two regiments to counter, decided to abandon the small town of Grafton. Mack ordered a pursuit, resulting in a minor battle that came to be known as the Philippi Races, after an even smaller town nearby. The rebel force there was routed, and Mack had his first victory, the importance of which was uh, greatly exaggerated in the press. Importantly, though, the victory and the removal of the uh, rebel forces from the area resulted in a convention of western Virginia counties in Wheeling. Almost exactly two years later, that convention would blossom into the new state of West, by God, Virginia. Uh, A few weeks after the Philippi races, Mack took personal command of the Union troops that were in West Virginia. And meanwhile, Robert E. Lee had also arrived in the area in hopes of salvaging the rebel presence. Upon Mack's arrival, he gave an inspirational, if melodramatic, um, address to the men. He announced, quote, Soldiers, I have heard that there was danger here. I have come to place myself at your head and to share it with you. I fear now but one thing, that you will not find foemen worthy of your steel. I know that I can rely upon you, Unquote. And yeah, the men just ate it up. Privately, though, Mack, while impressed with the soldiers, uh, you know, their makeup and their potential, he was still uneasy about their lack of discipline and experience. He wrote to Lincoln um, cabinet member Salmon Chase, uh, one of the few McClellan supporters in the administration, quote, Give me three months in a camp of instruction after this little campaign is over and I would not hesitate to put these men against the best of European troops," unquote. Mack would have command himself a few weeks later at Rich Mountain. Uh, rebel General Richard Garnett held a position at Laurel Hill, with a smaller detachment dug in at the base of the mountain. Mack ordered a uh, contingent uh, under William Rosecrans to try to flank the rebel group that was at the base of the mountain, using an obscure path brought to uh, his attention by a Union-loyal local. The idea was that, if successful, the flanking maneuver against the smaller group would make Garnett's position uh, with his larger force uh, vulnerable. And this was a big part of the McClellan military philosophy. Use strategy rather than pure military muscle, or as he put it, quote, no prospect of a brilliant victory shall induce me to depart from my intention of gaining success by maneuvering rather than fighting. I will not throw these raw men of mine into the teeth of artillery and entrenchments, if it is possible to avoid it." Unquote. Prior to the July 11th battle, uh, he wrote to Ellen: quote, "...I realize now the dreadful responsibility on me, the lives of my men, the reputation of the country, and the success of our cause." I shall feel my way and be very cautious, for I recognize the fact that everything requires success in my first operations. You need not be at all alarmed as to the result. God is on our side, And at Rich Mountain, Mack was successful. Uh, Shelby Foote described the maneuver, quote, It was brilliant. The flanking column made a rear attack and forced the surrender of the detachment, which in turn rendered Garnett's position on Laurel Hill untenable. Unquote. The smaller rebel force tried to withdraw, but had to surrender on July thirteenth, and Garnett was forced to pull back to the Shenandoah Valley, leaving um, modern-day West Virginia uh, effectively under Union control. Mack wrote to Washington, quote, Our success is complete, and secession is killed in this country, unquote. The victories earned Mack significant praise from the press and the favor of the administration. Winfield Scott told him that the cabinet, quote, are charmed with your activity, valor, and consequent successes, unquote. And to that, Mack responded, quote, all that I know of war I have learned from you, and in all that I have done, I have endeavored to conform to your manner of conducting a campaign, unquote. Uh, Congress even passed a resolution congratulating him on the victory, and flattering stories about McClellan appeared in, in papers throughout the North even Republican papers, uh, which had criticized his his earlier political statements. So he began planning a follow-up campaign into Kentucky and Tennessee. But then, disaster struck the Union. On July 21st, 1861, the first Battle of Manassas was fought, and it did not go well for the federal side. General Irving McDowell was handily defeated by two of McClellan's old buddies, PGT Beauregard and Joseph Johnston, and he completely lost the confidence of the administration. His army retreated back to Washington uh, in chaos, and on the heels of his recent success, the government turned to McClellan. The Union needed a hero to rally behind, and and there was no better candidate than the young general who had so recently earned a, a victory at Rich Mountain. So he received a telegram from the Capitol, quote, Circumstances make your presence here necessary. Charge Rosecrans or some other general with your present department and come hither without delay. Unquote. A train was sent just for him, and he was cheered along the way during stops in Wheeling, Pittsburgh, and Philadelphia. Upon his arrival in Washington on July 26, he was escorted directly to the White House and given command of the Military Division of the Potomac, charged with protecting Washington and building an army for an advance on Richmond. McClellan, uh, whose actual command experience could be measured in weeks, was still just 34 years old. Now, think about how fast things were moving for him. Uh, Just a few months ago, he was a civilian who had resigned from the army at the rank of captain, uh, with only very limited experience commanding men in battle. Now he was a major general in charge of the Union effort in what was seen as the most important theater of the war. I'm I'm once again going to quote Shelby Foote uh, for his typically eloquent description of Major General McClellan as he arrived in Washington to take control of the uh, disjointed situation. Quote, He did not seem young. He was young, with all the vigor and clear-eyed forcefulness that went with being 34. His eyes were blue, unclouded by suspicion, his glance direct. He wore his dark auburn hair parted far on the left and brushed straight across, adding a certain boyish charm to his air of forthright manliness. Clean shaven, save for a faint goatee and a heavy, rather scraggly mustache, which hid his mouth except when he threw back his head to laugh, he had strong, regular features that gave cartoonists little to catch hold of. He was of average height, five feet nine and a half inches. Yet was so robust and stockily built, his chest massive, his well shaped head set firmly on a muscular neck, a neck such as not one man in 10,000 possesses, an admirer wrote, that he seemed short. Photographers posed him standing with crossed arms, frowning into the lens as if he were dictating terms for the camera's surrender. Unquote. So it was an extraordinary responsibility that he had been given, and Mac recognized that. He wrote to Ellen, quote, I find myself in a new and strange position here. President, Cabinet, General Scott, and all deferring to me. By some strange operation of magic, I seem to have become the power of the land. I almost think that were I to win some small success now, I could become dictator, or anything else that might please me. But nothing of that kind would please me. Therefore, I won't be dictator. Unquote. We should clarify here that when McClellan uses the term dictator, he doesn't mean so much the modern idea uh, of an authoritarian tyrant. He's thinking more about the Roman concept. Um, during the Roman Republic, when, when a national mer- emergency would arise, uh, the Senate could suspend Republican rule and appoint a dictator to take charge for a, a year or so until everything calmed down. Uh, so Mac is comparing himself more to uh, Cincinnatus than to Mussolini. And he viewed his role as having been preordained in the Calvinist tradition. Uh, Mac hadn't been particularly religious growing up, and he was certainly um, never as outwardly devout as, as Stonewall Jackson. But due in part to Ellen's influence on him, he, he absolutely believed that God took an active part in worldly affairs. He wrote to Ellen, quote, I feel that God has placed a great work in my hands. I know how weak I am but I know that I mean to do right, and I believe he will help me and give me the wisdom that I do not possess. Uh, And then he went on, my previous life seems to have been unwittingly directed to this great end, Now, the first order of business uh, toward that great end was to restore discipline in the army and establish some organization. Uh, The army was necessarily growing uh, extremely rapidly, and the infrastructure needed to catch up. Mack felt confident that he could uh, get everything in order. He declared, quote, I see already the main causes of our recent failure. I am sure that I can remedy these, and I am confident that I can lead these armies of men to victory, unquote. He assigned two regiments of regulars to take on a uh, military police role, clearing out the bars and, and reining in the stragglers. The men were no longer permitted to just wander around the city, and insubordination was much more strictly punished. And the men, far from resisting the increased discipline, they loved him for it, and their confidence in themselves was soon restored. They affectionately referred to him as Little Mac and cheered him throughout the camps. Washington's residents noticed the improvement almost immediately, as did the national press. Uh, the New York World's editor wrote, quote, it is evident that General McClellan has done more in 10 days towards organizing the advance than Scott did in 10 weeks, unquote. And, and they began fawningly referring to him as the young Napoleon. Okay, I'm going to quote Shelby Foote one more time. And I promise this is going to be the last time for this episode, uh, because he really does a great job describing the impact that Mack had on the army when he took the helm In the summer and fall of 1861, Foote writes, quote, Something new had come into the war. Little Mac, the soldiers called this man, who would transfer them from a whipped mob into a hot-blooded army that seemed never to have known the taste of defeat. He brought out the best in them and restored their pride, and they hurrahed whenever he appeared on horseback, which he frequently did, accompanied by his staff, a glittering cavalcade that included two genuine princes of the blood. So, uh, with discipline and order established, he took to setting up Washington's defenses uh, with a series of forts and battlements um, highlighted by 500 cannons, and he made taking care of the men a high priority. The food, uh, living quarters, and equipment were all improved, due in no small part to max lobbying, and he wasn't shy about displaying genuine affection for the men under his command, it shook hands with everybody, and, and he learned the names of as many as he could. And that task was becoming more and more difficult as volunteers continued to pour into the city, so that the army soon outnumbered the residents. He drilled the men hard, but they, again, did not resent him for it. Um, after the poor showing at Manassas, they recognized that hard training was for their own good, and they appreciated that he was making the effort. A, a foreign observer remarked, quote, his presence is greeted with the enthusiasm that the soldiers of France always exhibited toward Napoleon, unquote. And with morale and discipline restored, and the volunteers well on their way to becoming fully trained soldiers, Mac was feeling confident in them, too. He told Ellen, quote, I flatter myself that Beauregard has gained his last victory, unquote. So while he was training and organizing the army, Mac was working all day, every day, and driving himself to exhaustion. Of all of the criticisms you hear of McClellan, laziness is never among them. And a big part of the long work days was that he didn't trust the inexperienced political officers that were commanding the bulk of the volunteers, and so he was micromanaging. He wanted to spread out the regular officers throughout the volunteer regiments, but there just weren't enough to go around. The Army had been small in the antebellum period, and the officer corps was disproportionately Southern. But Mack did lobby for and receive authorization to start weeding out some of the, uh, the incompetent political appointees. Within a couple of months, uh, 173 unqualified uh, volunteer officers uh, had resigned before they could be removed. And he tried to make up for the officer shortage, by recruiting experienced foreigners and he had some limited success in that. Most notably the Prince de Genville, and I have no idea whether I'm saying that right, who had been a Vice Admiral in the French Navy, and the Duke de Chartres and Comte de Paris ended up on McClellan's staff, bringing with them some of the prestige enjoyed by the uh, French military of the time. Uh, Mack also set to reorganizing the army itself by concentrating the regular soldiers in artillery positions. And this was a good idea, because artillery, it takes the most training, and it was a critical component uh, of a 19th century army, or any modern army, really. Where he made his mistake, though, was in how he set up the cavalry. The Union cavalry was at a disadvantage early in the war. And most of that was because, well, the South just had better, more experienced riders. But where Mack made a mistake that aggravated the situation was that he spread the cavalry all throughout the army with relatively smaller groups assigned to accompany infantry regiments and brigades. And he used the cavalry mostly for uh, shielding. Now, the rebels, um, on the other hand, had their cavalry centralized so that when cavalry skirmishes occurred, the focused rebel forces were usually numerically superior. And the Confederates were also better uh, about using cavalry for intelligence early in the war. Okay, so on August 2nd, at Lincoln's request, Mack presented a plan to the cabinet. He proposed to amass a a huge army, 273,000 strong, supported by over 600 artillery pieces, and drive hard at Richmond and force a decisive battle. After the victory, they would sweep south through the Carolinas and Georgia before capturing the Gulf ports. The idea was was that uh, if the southern armies were defeated... The people would fall in line as long as the war remained only about Union and not a threat to the southern way of life especially slavery that was still Lincoln's official position too but he rejected the plan they just didn't have time to build that huge army Mack would have to fight with the army that he had and this started to lead to tension between uh, between Mack and the administration and also with Winfield Scott a big part of that was because they held fundamentally different views on exactly the level of threat that Washington was under. Mack was getting bad intelligence from the Pinkerton detectives he'd hired that suggested Beauregard was on the other side of the Potomac with 100,000 or more men, and he was poised to attack. The big problem with Pinkerton's intelligence was that it it overly relied on rebel deserters, most of whom either told him what they thought that he wanted to hear or were plants intentionally feeding misinformation and mcclellan's psychology was such that he was predisposed to look for the worst case scenario so there was a bit of confirmation bias at play too and so between the bad intelligence and planted rebel deserters uh, feeding him exaggerated estimates of rebel strength Mac would never quite get over the idea that he was facing substantially larger rebel forces than what he was actually up against. Now, Winfield Scott, though, was a hardened realist. He had fought successfully in several wars, ha- had seen a lot of supposed threats come and go, and he was, as a result, uh, not one to overreact. Scott's opinion was that There was probably about 45,000 rebels in Northern Virginia, and and they presented no threat whatsoever to Washington. And he was a little offended by the young upstart's suggestion that D.C.'s defenses, which Scott himself had prepared, were inadequate. For his part, Max started thinking that the 75-year-old Scott, who by that point was too fat to command in the field, was past his sell-by date. He resented Scott for pushing the administration's position, uh, which was that the army should attack as soon as possible. Mack thought the men weren't ready for that. And like we mentioned earlier, he, he truly seems to have uh, cared about the well-being of his men. And he didn't want to send them into battle until he was until he was confident that they were fully prepared. Now, as it turns out, Scott was right about the rebel strength at the time. They did have about 45,000 men. And those men were poorly equipped and had not yet become well-organized or trained. You know, this is before uh, Robert E. Lee put his stamp on the army. But again, based upon poor intelligence and some creative rebel ruses, uh, such as the Quaker guns, uh, which were essentially logs painted to look like artillery pieces, Mack overestimated basically every element of the rebel force including the quality of its uh, officer corps at the time. Uh, The numbers fed to him by Alan Pinkerton and his detectives continued to increase throughout the fall until he was uh, being told in December that there were a full 200,000 Confederate soldiers threatening Washington. And uh, accepting these numbers at face value, McClellan understandably wanted to play defense uh, until he could increase the size of his own army. And because of this delay, throughout the fall, he gradually lost the support of politicians and the press who favored an an aggressive response. They wanted the General McClellan from West Virginia, who had aggressively moved against a force that he knew to be inferior to his own, and the D.C. populace, who had raved about the young general uh, upon his arrival, even going so far as to suggest that he was the uh, obvious pick to succeed Lincoln as president. Well, they were getting discouraged. So turning back to September, though, in 1861, um, convinced Washington was on the verge of being swamped by a vastly superior rebel force, Mack met with Scott to convey his concern. And he wrote to Ellen beforehand, he wrote, quote, "'I have scarcely slept one moment for the last three nights, "'knowing well that the enemy intends some movement "'and fully recognizing our own weakness. "'If Beauregard does not attack tonight, "'I shall look upon it as a dispensation of providence.'" he ought to do it. I am here in a terrible place. The enemy have from three to four times my force, unquote. And the fact that he is writing that to Ellen really tells you that he truly believed it, because as we mentioned in the last episode, the, uh, the correspondence to Ellen is, is unfiltered McClellan. So if he's, if he's telling her that he thinks he's outnumbered by three to four times, then uh, we can almost uh, rest assured that it's, that's what he truly believed. Uh, but anyway, Scott responded to McClellan's concerns. Uh, he wrote, quote, "'Relying upon our numbers, our forts, and the Potomac River, I am confident in the opposite direction.'" Scott just simply did not buy the Pinkerton numbers or the rumors of a pending rebel assault. So President Lincoln was, he was very astute, and, and he was really good at, at reading people and situations. And so on, on September 27th, he called a cabinet meeting to try to uh, resolve the conflict that he saw brewing between his, his two top generals. Unfortunately, uh, instead of helping, the meeting only made matters worse. Now, Scott was upset because he, he thought, well, correctly, that, that McClellan was second-guessing him, and Mac thought that Scott was interfering with his ability to prepare the army for the inevitable rebel assault. And the result was that Winfield Scott offered to resign, and for other differences, he still thought that McClellan was the best man for the job, and so he was willing to step aside if the cabinet thought that that would be in the country's best interests. you got to remember scott was a he was a union loyal Virginian, and he was a thorough patriot, and so he was willing to lose face rather than hinder the war effort. He said to Mac at the time quote. "...you were called here by my advice. The times require vigilance and activity. I am not active and never shall be again. When I proposed that you should come here to aid, not supersede, me, you had my friendship and confidence. You still have my confidence." Now, of course, Scott is implying that uh, they're no longer friends. But um, Scott had considered court-martialing McClellan for insubordination. But he ultimately determined that it would just be too bad for the army's morale. Uh, McClellan had had thoroughly won over the men, and they took his side in the power struggle. The the Comte de Paris uh, recorded hearing quote generals say if in ten days McClellan is not commander in chief, the army shall have something to do with the matter, leading one almost to glimpse the prospect of an eighteen brumaire unquote. And when um, he says commander-in-chief, he's not talking about the president, he means the, you know, the top-ranking general. And 18 Brumaire was, uh, of course, the, the coup that brought Napoleon Bonaparte to power in France. Now, notwithstanding his popularity with the army, politically, McClellan was still a total outsider in Washington. With the Southerners gone and the Republican Party ascendant, conservative Democrats like Mack were relatively rare creatures in the capital, But that didn't stop him from getting involved in the political scene uh, during his time in Washington. He had regular visits with foreign dignitaries and senators, including an interview with Massachusetts Senator uh, Charles Sumner, who was considered an especially radical Republican. And Mack did not hold back. He recalled that he made clear to Sumner, quote, that I was fighting for my country and the union, not for abolition and the Republican Party, unquote. He wasn't shy about stating his opinion that uh, the politicians were putting their own parties and their own ambition ahead of the country's best interests. And while that is quite often the case, and uh, almost certainly was then as well, his statements did little to endear him to the powerful Republican politicians who were running the show in D.C. Uh, Interestingly, he never missed an opportunity to say that he was fighting to preserve the Union, and not to end slavery. Uh, but on a personal level, he clearly did not like slavery. He he wrote to Ellen, for instance, that quote, when the day of adjustment comes, I will, if successful, throw my sword into the swale to force an improvement in the condition of blacks. Uh, that is, uh, win the war and restore the union first, then we'll deal with the problem through gradual emancipation uh, once the Southern states had returned. Mac was shooting himself in the foot, uh, getting involved in politics. If he could have just kept his mouth shut, you know, like Grant would do later, he would have had a lot more support. But when he made it known that he was a conservative Democrat and basically thought very poorly of the Republicans, he lost a lot of potential allies. And, and one of his biggest weaknesses is he's just he never seemed concerned about that. It was not a problem to him to have uh, the support of the powerful politicians, and it would come back and and bite him in the butt. Uh, so on October 18th, which is a week after the birth of Mac's daughter, May, uh, Lincoln called another cabinet meeting. Uh, this time, the purpose was to announce that the administration had decided to accept Winfield Scott's resignation as general-in-chief. McClellan Would take over the role effective November 1st, in addition to his current command of the Army of the Potomac, uh, which he had christened back in uh, August. But in the two weeks between the acceptance of Scott's resignation and Mack's formally taking command, the Army of the Potomac ran into another tragedy. It started in late October when uh, Mack learned that the rebels were abandoning Leesburg, which is uh, roughly uh, 30 miles from uh, Washington. Mac sent two divisions to investigate, one on either side of the Potomac, so uh, one in Virginia and, and one in Maryland. The Maryland force was commanded by Brigadier Charles Stone. Stone sent two regiments across the river with designs of teaming with the division on the Virginia side uh, to catch the rebels in an uh, enveloping movement. But they had to cross in groups of 25 because of the, the small boats they were working with. And on the opposite side of the river, there was a steep bank. As they approached, they followed the sound of gunfire and used a narrow pathway to get up the steep bank where they found a Union regiment in the middle of a firefight. One of the new arrivals, uh, Colonel Edward Baker, took command, uh, saying to the colonel from whom he was assuming command, quote, I congratulate you, sir, on the prospects of a battle, unquote. Now, the thing about Baker was that he wasn't just any volunteer colonel. He was also a sitting United States Senator and a good friend of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Because Baker wasn't a professional soldier, he didn't realize the fix that he and his men were in. But shortly after Baker took command, another regiment arrived. Uh, This one from New York, and this one commanded by an experienced soldier, who pointed out that um, rather than being enthused about the prospects of a battle, They needed to get the hell out of there. You see, the rebels were holding the high ground, covered by a wooded area. Uh, The smaller Union force, though, was exposed in a meadow with its back to an unfordable river. In fact, rebel snipers were already beginning to pick apart the Union soldiers uh, that were in the clearing, one man at a time. And it was right about that time that one of the rebel snipers bagged the only currently sitting United States senator to ever die in combat. The head wound killed Senator Baker instantly, and the rest of the Union force began to panic. So next, the rebel yell rang out as four Confederate regiments charged at the mass of Union troops stranded on Ball's Bluff. A panicked retreat followed. All of the men wanted to be the first to board the small boats that they had come across on. A rebel soldier recalled, quote, "...a kind of shiver ran through the huddled mass upon the brow of the cliff." It gave way, rushed a few steps, then in one wild, panic-stricken herd, rolled, leaped, tumbled over the precipice, unquote. Union men leapt off the cliff, uh, hitting men already on the bank below, and-, and the rebels fired into the mass collecting on the edge of the river, fish in the proverbial barrel. Uh, the men overfilled the boats, causing several to capsize and many men to drown, The rebels shot the last boat enough times that it would no longer float. Uh, Most of the men stuck on the wrong side of the river surrendered. Uh, A few strong swimmers were able to take off their clothes and make it across. Overall, 700 men were captured, with over 300 more killed or wounded, including Senator Edward Dickinson Baker. Uh, President Lincoln, who uh, dealt with, well, more than one personal uh, loss during the war, wept over the death of his good friend, Ned Baker. Baker's colleagues in the Senate demanded a scapegoat and formed the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War to identify one uh, without consulting Lincoln or McClellan. General Charles Stone, uh, who was the brigadier who had ordered the, uh, the crossing into Virginia, was deemed a fitting sacrifice. Stone was accused of deliberately conspiring with the enemy to get the men who had crossed the river killed. And he got railroaded and imprisoned for six months, uh, not even permitted to question his accusers or the supposed evidence that was presented against him, which, uh, as it turns out, was insufficient to support any formal charges. Now, Mack lobbied to get Stone a fair hearing, but he was uh, brushed aside. So the radical's eagerness to make an example of Stone made quite an impression on Mack. He confided to Ellen, quote, I have a set of men to deal with, unscrupulous and false. If possible, they will throw whatever blame there is on my shoulders, and I do not intend to be sacrificed by such people. And you can kind of understand where McClellan is coming from and how this episode could have made his already wary nature start leaning towards paranoia. He has these politicians who are demanding immediate, aggressive action. But when the action taken is too aggressive and things don't go well, then they're out for scalps. So Mack attempted to console Lincoln about the death of Lincoln's good friend Baker. He said, quote, There is many a good fellow that wears the shoulder straps going under the sod before this thing is over. There is no loss too great to be repaired. If I should get knocked on the head, Mr. President, you will put another man into my shoes, unquote. And Lincoln responded, quote, I want you to take care of yourself, unquote. So after the Balls Bluff fiasco, on October 31st, Lincoln officially named McClellan General in Chief. He-, he told the general, quote, I have designated you to command the whole army. McClellan re- replied, it is a great relief, sir. I feel as if several tons were taken from my shoulders today. I am now in contact with you and the secretary. I am not embarrassed by intervention, unquote. Lincoln expressed concern uh, that the dual responsibilities, you know, McClellan was going to be general-in-chief, so, you know, in charge of the uh, entire Union war effort, and uh, stay in command of the Army of the Potomac. Well, Lincoln was worried that it was, it was just too much for one man to handle, uh, to which Mack replied, I can do it all. Now, for the most part, uh, throughout the war, Lincoln demonstrated uh, really good judgment. But in, in this decision... Uh, that wasn't the case. He he should have trusted his instincts. That that was just, it was too much responsibility for any one man to handle. Uh, even Grant, when he became general-in-chief, left Meade in charge of the day-to-day command of the uh, the army. But Lincoln accepted Max's reassurance at face value, and uh, unfortunately, it, it really didn't work out too well for uh, either man. The next task for the young commander was to see off the exiting Winfield Scott the next morning. And they had a cordial farewell, and McClellan issued a general order in praise of the departing Winfield Scott, uh, calling on the army to, quote, "...let our victories illuminate the close of a life so grand." Unquote. The, the Comte de Paris, who you remember was serving on McClellan's staff, he, he wrote of the position that Mac found himself in, n- now that Scott was gone, quote, "...called it so youthful an age to his nation's highest military position." by the will of public opinion, not by what he has done, but by what is expected of him." Unquote. So now firmly in charge, Mac sent to work cutting red tape and improving communications in the army uh, throughout the country. He described his overall strategy like this, quote, My intention is simply this, I will pay no attention to popular clamor. Quietly and quickly as possible make this army strong enough and effective enough to give me a reasonable certainty that If I am able to handle the form, I will win the first battle, As we mentioned earlier, he wanted to win a big, decisive battle uh, in Virginia that would force the rebels to sue for peace. But he wanted to set that up using coordinated offensives throughout the country. Again, this is like Grant would do a few years later. Um, The idea was to force the issue and prevent the rebels from taking advantage of their uh, interior lines. Overall, McClellan's relationship with Lincoln was a pretty mixed bag. In frustrated letters to Ellen, he would refer to the president as the original gorilla and question whether he was dignified enough for the office he held. But he also referred to him as a true friend and expressed what comes across as sincere gratitude for the confidence that Lincoln had displayed in him. In his memoirs, McClellan wrote, quote, I never had any trouble with Mr. Lincoln when I could meet him face to face. The difficulty always came behind my back. I believe he liked me personally, and he certainly was always under my influence when in personal contact. Unquote. It seems that he thought the problem was less with Lincoln himself and more with the, um, the cabinet members' influence on him. And McClellan just couldn't bring himself to, uh, to have any faith at all in politicians. A reporter in Washington at the time later concluded, quote, "The general's single mistake that was the source of all his misfortunes was his distrust of Lincoln." Unquote. And I think Lincoln, uh, I think he learned some lessons from his dealings with McClellan too, uh, that ultimately benefited Grant. Grant was able to keep his, his military plans under wraps, uh, away from political influence. But but Mac wasn't really uh, afforded that luxury. And Lincoln shielded Grant from the D.C. politicians much more successfully than McClellan. Uh, Of course, a lot of that was um, McClellan's own fault because, as noted by the reporter we just mentioned, uh, Mack never really took Lincoln into his his confidence, like Grant did. Uh, Which brings us to December 1861 and the start of the congressional session. Right off the bat, the Republican congressman and senators started in after McClellan. Now, some of their criticism was justified. Mack had been in command for almost six months now and hadn't taken any real action. Uh, but the thing was, uh, the war was getting increasingly political. And McClellan, as an unrepentant Democrat, was, it was a lightning rod for the politics. He was called to testify before the Joint Committee uh, on the Conduct of the War. But he had to skip it due to a, a nasty bout of typhoid fever uh, that kept him out of commission for a month or so. Meanwhile, Republicans and Republican-leaning newspapers uh, attacked him savagely, while Democrats and their newspapers defended him. Uh, by and large, though, the, uh, the public still had faith in him. So in January 1862, Mack thought that he had found a supporter in the cabinet when Edwin Stanton was appointed to replace uh, Simon Cameron as Secretary of War. Stanton was an Illinois lawyer, and he had been uh, a fairly close associate of McClellan's in his railroad days. Stanton met with Mack before accepting the post, and he promised that he would only take the job if Mack approved, and and that if he did take it, he would be a McClellan supporter and defend him against the radicals. Now, Mac was thrilled with the idea of having a close ally in the administration, and he urged Stanton to accept. However, and I guess this is a spoiler alert, uh, McClellan would soon learn that Stanton was not the trustworthy character that he presented himself as. He was an um, unquestionably competent and skilled politician, but he was also uh, something of a backstabber. Um, for my fellow Game of Thrones fans out there, think uh, Peter Baelish, Littlefinger. Fitz John Porter, one of Mac's subordinate generals and, and friends, uh, describes Stanton as, quote, a politician who would sacrifice a million lives for his own advancement, unquote. So, mostly recovered from his illness, Mac testified before the Joint Committee on January 15th, and this is 1862. Uh, He struck in an analytical tone. He explained that the delay was necessary, you know, first to train the army and and then to secure supply lines and and establish withdrawal routes uh, prior to attacking. And Mack was, you know, he was probably overly cautious, but uh, what he described was pretty sound military strategy, you know, prepare first, uh, plan for every contingency. The Republican senators, however, did not accept this explanation. Instead, he was accused of "quote infernal, unmitigated cowardice" by Senator Benjamin Wade of Ohio. Uh, Wade, who was also an outspoken critic of Lincoln's, and referred to the president as "poor white trash." Uh, so, as you probably guessed, he had never served in the military. So he was the the 19th century equivalent of a uh, you know a modern day chicken hawk. But the pressure to to move continued to build up. Uh, Stanton who Max still considered an ally, uh, he, he wrote to McClellan, quote, you have no idea of the pressures brought to bear here upon the government for forward movement, unquote. And Lincoln advocated uh, for an overland campaign, you know, similar to what Grant would try in 1864. Now, uh, the defining feature of Grant's 1864 overland campaign was the, the brutal casualty count. And it's questionable whether the country and, and the army were prepared for that kind of uh, a meat grinder in early 1862. Mack advocated for a different approach. What he wanted to do was to move the army by sea to uh, Virginia's Tidewater region, um, the Norfolk, uh, Yorktown, Williamsburg area, and uh, move on Richmond from the the southeast. The idea was that they could get around the defenses the Confederates had set up in northern Virginia and get the jump on the rebel defenders and uh, take advantage of the Uh, both the James and the York Rivers, to supply the army, uh, while also having a a, a shorter march over land. And controlling the James would also be uh, the key to Grant's successful Petersburg campaign that effectively ended the war. Uh, So the plan wasn't a bad idea. So with a certain amount of hesitation, Lincoln agreed to what came to be known as the Peninsula Campaign, as long as Mack would guarantee the safety of Washington and get rid of the rebel gun batteries that were on the Virginia Bank of the Potomac, threatening shipping into, the, into Washington. And the president issued a general order at the end of January, ordering Mack to begin the offensive by February 22nd. Mack would not meet the deadline. As preparations began, Lincoln's concerns about the Capitol's vulnerability increased, and there were rumors that Mack was intentionally leaving the city unprotected. So to reassure the president, he offered to call a council of war and put the plan to a vote. The council approved the plan by an 8-4 vote. And the day after the vote, news arrived from an escaped slave that the rebels had withdrawn from the Northern Virginia position. So Mack had 112,000 men moving the next day, but they were unable to catch Joseph Johnston's army as it moved south of the Rappahannock. A review of the abandoned rebel camps led to the discovery of the infamous Quaker guns that we mentioned earlier, which in turn led to further derision of McClellan for having allowed himself to be bluffed into inactivity by fake artillery. Author Nathaniel Hawthorne recorded at the time, quote, the outcry opened against General McClellan since the enemy's retreat from Manassas is really terrible and almost universal, unquote. Of more strategic importance than the Quaker guns though, Uh, Johnston's withdrawal meant that the move to the Tidewater would not put the Army of the Potomac in the rebels rear as uh, had originally been planned so the rebel army would be between them and Richmond after yet another missed deadline Mack received surprising news from of all places a newspaper he had been relieved as general in chief with overall strategy now to be determined by a, a war board led by Lincoln and Stanton Lincoln assured Mac that the move did not represent a loss of confidence in him. It was made because because Mac was beginning a campaign, and so he needed to focus on commanding the Army of the Potomac, uh, which makes pretty good sense. Uh, Mack saw the move as Lincoln caving to the radicals, but he still thought that he held favor with Lincoln generally. He wrote to Ellen, quote, The president is all right. He is my strongest friend, unquote. But he also didn't hide his disdain for the political intrigue. Quote, I think the less I see of Washington, the better. I regret that the rascals are after me again. If I can get out of this scrape, you will never catch me in the power of such a set again. Unquote. And rascal was a much stronger term in the 1800s than what we think of today. Mack was right to believe that Republican politicians were conspiring against him. While Republican senators were lobbying Lincoln strongly to fire McClellan in in favor of a commander who was not a Democrat, Stanton was quietly offering command of the Army of the Potomac to Winfield Scott's former chief of staff, Ethan Allen Hitchcock. Uh, Hitchcock, though, declined the command uh, due to his poor health. And it's unclear whether Lincoln had approved of, of Stanton's making that offer. So the peninsula campaign began on March 14th, 1862, when the army set sail from Alexandria, Virginia to Fort Monroe. Addressing the army of the Potomac, which he claimed, is my army as much as any army ever belonged to the man that created it. Mack declared, quote, I will bring you now face to face with the rebels. Ever bear in mind that my fate is linked with yours. I am to watch over you as a parent over his children, and you know, that your general loves you from the depths of his heart," unquote. And again, there's no reason to believe that Mac's affection for the soldiers was anything but genuine. When McClellan himself set sail on March 17th, he was leading what was, at the time, the largest amphibious operation in American history. Over 400 ships and boats, uh, moved over 120,000 men and 15,000 horses. McClellan left behind uh, one corps to defend the Capitol, and a brigade under Nathaniel Banks remained in the Shenandoah Valley, where it would soon be harassed by Stonewall Jackson. Lincoln would also appease the radicals by diverting a division to support 1856 Republican presidential candidate John Fremont, uh, which further weakened McClellan's forces, much to the general's chagrin. The overall approach in uh, the peninsula was to move incrementally and avoid direct assaults on the trench positions. They would take a little ground, fortify the position, take some more, and methodically maneuver the rebels back to Richmond and lay siege, taking advantage of the Union's big advantage in artillery. He gathered up all available big guns and used the York River Railroad and the Navy to move them. Maintaining the railroads and rivers was of the utmost importance because the army would require 600 tons of provisions and supplies every day. Beginning on April 2nd, McClellan started preparations to take Yorktown, which was held by Confederate General Prince John Magruder with 11,000 men. But Magruder, who was a, uh, a theater enthusiast, he used his dramatic talents to, to make the force under his command appear significantly larger. And so instead of simply overwhelming the much smaller rebel force, Mack decided that he would lay siege to Yorktown too, basically a smaller-scale version uh, of what he had in store for Richmond. And the siege preparations ended up taking a month, allowing uh, R.E. Lee to better prepare Richmond's defenses and uh, drawing more criticism from the, uh, for the continuing delays. Old McClellan friend Joseph Johnston later remarked, quote, no one but McClellan could have hesitated to attack, unquote. On April 5th, Lincoln wired McClellan to let him know that he had decided to hold back the First Corps under Irvin McDowell to offer further protection to Washington. Now, more than probably anything else, that telegram led to the failure of the Peninsula Campaign. And not so much because of the lost men, but because it, it planted the seeds of doubt in McClellan's mind. He responded to the president, quote, In my deliberate judgment, the success of our cause will be imperiled. I am now of the opinion that I shall have to fight all of the available force of the rebels not far from here. Do not force me to do so with diminished numbers, unquote. And to Ellen, he vented, quote, It is the most infamous thing that history has recorded. The idea of depriving a general of 35,000 troops when actually under fire, unquote. Now, for Mac, everything was about preparation, and losing a 35,000-man corps completely threw off his plans. Uh, he couldn't improvise like, like a Grant or a Lee. And so there was this self-fulfilling prophecy, the idea that the, the administration, you know, for political purposes, wanted him to fail and was trying to sabotage him. They didn't want to end the war yet, McClellan believed, because they needed it to go on longer, to abolish slavery, and they didn't want him, McClellan, getting the glory uh, because he was a dirty old Democrat. Of course, that latter fear was true for some of the Washington politicians, but, but certainly not for Lincoln. In, in his 1864 report, um, Mack matter-of-factly concluded uh, of the decision to withhold McDowell's corps quote, it compelled the adoption of another, a different and a less effective plan of campaign, it made rapid and brilliant operations impossible. It was a fatal error, unquote. So Max spent weeks preparing, planning, and slowly moving the army, all the while stewing over what he perceived as a betrayal by the Lincoln administration. He confided to Ellen, quote, I feel that the fate of the nation depends on me, and I feel that I have not one single friend at the seat of the government. Any day may bring an order relieving me from command. If such a thing should be done... Our cause is lost, uh, Lincoln himself famously observed uh, of the, the delay, quote, It is called the Army of the Potomac, but it is only McClellan's bodyguard. If McClellan is not using the army, I should like to borrow it for a while, unquote. On May 3rd, Johnston withdrew back behind the Chickahominy River, and Norfolk was abandoned shortly thereafter, and the famous ironclad Merrimack was scuttled. With little real action, McClellan had scored significant strategic gains, and the, uh, the House of Representatives commended him, quote, for the display of those high military qualities which secure important results with but little sacrifice of human life, unquote. And this was McClellan's whole philosophy. He wanted to secure victory by outmaneuvering the opponent and not through a bloodbath. And so far, notwithstanding the delay, it appeared to be working, that he ultimately failed uh, in the approach, you know, would make it easier to accept Grant's mm, opposite theory uh, in practice two years later. Johnston's movement uh, back behind the Chickahominy uh, allowed Mack to set up a new headquarters at White House Plantation, which could be supplied uh, via the York River or the railroad. The path to Richmond seemed to be opening up, and despite still being upset about the reduced force, things were going according to plan, but it was inevitable that complications would arise, and they did when heavy spring rain set in. Water in the tidewater is not unusual, but the spring of 1862 was even rainier than normal. Roads became impassable, bridges washed out, and the army's uh, methodical approach ground to a halt. Mac would use the delay as an opportunity to engage in his favorite pastime, pleading for more men. Pinkerton was feeding him estimates of the rebel force that tripled its actual manpower and planted rebel deserters, one of the rebels' favorite tricks, confirmed the numbers that Mac was already predisposed to believe. And with Scott out of the picture and the cavalry not, not really being, you know, deployed for any meaningful reconnaissance, he wasn't getting any conflicting information. He wrote to Stanton, quote, If I am not reinforced, it is probable that I will be obliged to fight nearly double my numbers. Strongly entrenched, unquote. But there weren't any men available other than those guarding the Capitol. And they needed to stay put with Stonewall Jackson on the loose in the valley. And even if they were, Lincoln wasn't impressed with the use to which Mack was putting the men that he did have. The president declared, you know, in his folksy way, quote, sending armies to McClellan is like shoveling fleas across a barnyard. Not half of them get there. So with Jackson wreaking havoc, by mid-May, Lincoln decided that it was time to press the issue. He wired Mac, quote, I think the time is near when you must either attack Richmond or give up the job and come to the defense of Washington, unquote. Now, Mack responded by telling Lincoln, correctly, that Jackson's campaign in the Valley was uh, a diversion designed to prevent unification of the federal army. Jackson wasn't really going to attack D.C. Uh, He had to be prepared to return to Richmond when the attack came there. And, you know, Mack was right, but that was a risk that Lincoln couldn't accept. An assault on Washington would have been devastating to the war effort and, and to public opinion. So on May 30th, Mac was finally ready for the big move. He had inched to within 10 miles of Richmond, 10 miles, uh, with the army astride the Chickahominy River so that its, its right flank and supply lines would be protected. It was a risky position, but his engineers had constructed multiple bridges uh, to move the army, including artillery, across the river quickly on short notice. But then once again, heavy rain set in. The river flooded and washed out several of the bridges and destroyed a significant portion of the the Union fieldworks. And to make matters worse, Mack had a flare-up of the malaria that had sporadically plagued him since his time in Mexico. Now, Joe Johnston probably didn't know about the malaria, but he certainly knew about the flooding and the washed-out bridges. And so on May 31st, he decided to pounce. While Mack was bedridden, Johnston ordered an attack on the portion of the Union Army south of the river at Seven Pines. After some heavy fighting in the morning, Edwin Sumner's 2nd Corps crossed south and put a halt to the attack. Mack tried to move closer to the battle, but he was so sick he could barely ride. Still, he managed to issue orders for emergency bridge repairs and transfer of troops south of the river in preparation for an expected resumed attack the following day, June 1st. The June 1st attack was easily repulsed when it came, and the Army's uh, malaria-suffering commander, with great difficulty, reviewed the field. An embedded reporter recorded, quote, During the progress, he was greeted with great enthusiasm. It was a splendid ovation, unquote. Uh, McClellan considered a counterattack, but ultimately nothing came of it. Mostly that was because he was too sick to command, and he didn't have enough faith in his corps commanders yet to let them do it. H- had he known the state of the rebel force, though, he might have reconsidered. As it turns out, Joe Johnston had been wounded in the Seven Pines fighting, and another of McClellan's old friends, G.W. Smith, took command. Within a few hours, it was obvious that Smith was in over his head, and before long, Robert E. Lee would take over. But had McClellan struck in the interval between uh, when Johnston went down And when Lee took command, he may have found a disorganized Confederate army ripe for destruction. Mack had fought fairly closely with Lee in Mexico, and he thought that the rebel change in command boded well for the Federals. He advised Lincoln that Lee was cautious, weak, and irresolute, and was overall a preferable uh, adversary to Johnston. After more pleas for more men, and some further delay, on June 7th, mac told lincoln that he would attack the next week and on june 18th he advised quote, after tomorrow we shall fight the rebel army as soon as providence will permit we shall await only a favorable condition of the earth and sky and the completion of some necessary preliminaries unquote. so he rationalized the delay on the grounds that uh, by rushing the army the administration was pushing it into another manassas type disaster and there is a certain logic to it had he thrown caution to the wind and ordered an all-out attack on entrenched positions and taken heavy losses it could have demoralized the army and the public with it uh, by the end of the war most everyone had learned that frontal uh, assaults on earthworks were just a waste of manpower but early on that lesson had yet to be learned and Mac was extra cautious because In addition to the inflated troop numbers, Pinkerton was now telling him uh, about all the the political intrigue going on in Washington that was designed to get rid of him, uh, which further inflamed his paranoia. Mack lamented to Ellen, quote, Honest Abe has again fallen into the hands of my enemies and is no longer a cordial friend of mine. Yet, when I see such insane folly behind me, I feel that the final salvation of the country demands the utmost prudence on my part and that i must not run the slightest risk of disaster for if anything happened to this army our cause would be lost uh, mcclellan and some of his subordinates made the mistake of letting slip to the press the frustrations that they were having with washington uh, how the administration wasn't giving them the men they needed the democrat papers lapped it up and it bought Mack some sympathy among the the populace But the media reports also did something else, uh, something much more dangerous to the Union war effort. The reports allowed Robert E. Lee to learn that McClellan believed that he was outnumbered. On June 24th, the Army of the Potomac was ready for their final push on Richmond, but Lee had McClellan figured out. He told Jefferson Davis, quote, McClellan will make this a battle of posts. He will take position from position under cover of his heavy guns, and we could not get at him without storming his works, unquote. That is, they, they couldn't defend against a siege if it sat in, so they needed to attack. On June 25th, Mac started his offensive, and the Battle of Oak Grove touched off the Seven Days Battles. A, a relatively small, inconclusive fight south of the Chickahominy earned the Union army uh, about 1,000 yards. Afterwards, a planted contraband, or an escaped slave, Wandered into Union lines with stories of P.G.T. Beauregard's arrival in Richmond, raising rebel numbers to 200,000. Combined with reports of Jackson's imminent arrival in his rear, Mac panicked and all but called off the movement against Richmond. He would not have the opportunity to go on the offensive uh, on the Peninsula again. Now, notwithstanding the estimates that McClellan was working with. He was faced off with 104,000 men uh, against Lee with about 84,000. Now, Lee was gambling that Mack was not going to attack because he thought that he was outnumbered. And so he assigned 30,000 men to defend Richmond south of the river and positioned the remainder of his force to the north uh, for an attack on McClellan. Mack seemed to be aware of the deployment. He just didn't act on it. He told Fitz John Porter that uh, if attacked on his right flank— He would respond by taking decisive action uh, against Richmond. And he told Ellen, quote, I shall allow the enemy to cut off our communications in order to secure success. That is, he would leave the communications lines north of the river vulnerable so that he could attack Richmond from the south. But he also considered shifting most of his army north and meeting the rebel attack uh, head on for a big decisive battle. Either approach stood a good chance of success. Instead, Mack did neither. It was it was paralysis by analysis. So the following day, June 26th, Lee launched the attack on the uh, Union right. Due to poor execution by the rebels, the attack was repulsed. Mack wired Stanton, quote, victory of today complete and against great odds. I almost begin to think we are invincible, unquote. Instead of ordering a counterattack on the, the vulnerable Confederate right uh, that night, Mack ordered Porter to withdraw to the river to avoid being flanked, so he was surrendering the initiative to Lee. On June 27th, after a limited probe on the rebel right, which was met by more Prince John Magruder theatrics that served to confirm McClellan's preconceived belief in the overwhelming uh, rebel numbers, uh, he abandoned all pretenses of taking Richmond. Fitzjohn Porter defended against a, a heavy rebel attack on the Union right, Uh, believing the whole time that he was uh, desperately holding the flank so as to allow Mack's advance on Richmond. But uh, ultimately, he was pushed back in the evening. And that was the point that Mack decided on his um, much derided change of base. He informed Washington, quote, "...we have met a severe repulse today, having been attacked by vastly superior numbers, and I'm obliged to fall back between the Chickahominy and James River." So he was abandoning his supply depot, uh, leaving literally tons of supplies for the rebels to to rely on the gunboats on the James River for protection. In McClellan's mind, he was was doing the only sensible thing. He was substantially outnumbered, and the administration was refusing him the men that he needed. So he had to save the army. He expressed his frustration in a telegram to Stanton, uh, who McClellan was now... 100% One hundred percent convinced was was sabotaging the campaign. McClellan wrote, quote, "I have seen too many dead and wounded comrades to feel otherwise than that the government has not sustained this army. If I save this army now, I tell you plainly that I owe no thanks to you or any other persons in Washington. You have done your best to sacrifice this army." Unquote. Uh, a thoughtful War Department telegram operator probably wanting to avoid seeing McClellan court-martialed, removed the final line from the message before delivering it to the Secretary of War. Lincoln tried to reassure his general. He responded, quote, Save your army at all events. We'll send reinforcements as fast as we can, unquote. And the next day, though, the rebels cut the telegraph wires. Uh, over the next three days thereafter, Lee continued to press while McClellan retreated. For the most part, the Union Army was succeeding on the field. They were maintaining their ground during the day, and they were inflicting heavier casualties on the rebels uh, than they were taking themselves. But after fighting well during the day, each night they would retreat. Now, corps commanders like Edwin Sumner were urging McClellan to counterattack, but he declined. It should be noted that the Union retreat, which was not good strategy, it was completely unnecessary, but it was skillfully executed. The bloody Battle of Malvern Hill was fought on July 1st. Uh, Rebel attacks on strong Union positions were emphatically repulsed with high rebel casualties and few Union losses. McClellan's friend Fitz John Porter, uh, who defended against the the heaviest attack on the Union left, told Mack that, if reinforced, he believed he could launch a successful counterattack. But once again, Mack chose to continue the withdrawal to Harrison's Landing and the safety of the Union gunboats on the James. He rationalized the decision in a wire to Lincoln. McClellan writes, quote, I have not yielded an inch of ground unnecessarily, but have retired to prevent the superior force of the enemy from cutting me off and to take a different base of operations, unquote. With the Army having arrived at Harrison's landing, the change of base was complete, and Lee concluded that uh, the new Union position was too strong to risk an attack. So, the seven days battles were effectively over. The Army of the Potomac had taken somewhere around 16,000 casualties and inflicted significantly more on the rebels. But it was still a rebel victory. The advance on Richmond had been turned back, and Robert E. Lee had begun to establish himself as a force to be reckoned with. And Mack's reputation for overcaution was further cemented. The Southern public was energized by the victory. And Northerners were disheartened. The Northern press's take on the campaign was split on party lines. Republican papers described Mack as, quote, cowering on the banks of the James under the wing and protection of our gunboats. But the Democrat leaning New York Times, on the other hand, saw this skillful retreat as, quote, one of the boldest military conceptions ever formed. Unquote. Uh, Stanton was villainized for withholding necessary reinforcements in what was painted as a deliberate attempt to prevent a McClellan victory, and the resulting rise uh, of a potential political rival. By and large, the army stood by Mack, uh, notwithstanding a few doubts about whether the change of base had truly been necessary. Stanton became a hated figure among the men. His decision to close the recruiting stations in April, on the eve of the campaign, was seen as evidence of of a deliberate policy of withholding necessary troops in an effort to sabotage Little Mac's victory. And even Lincoln was scorned by many of the soldiers. Uh, By this point, Mac was describing Stanton, who you will remember he thought of as a a potential important ally earlier on. Um, In a letter to Ellen, he was describing Stanton as an unmitigated scoundrel comparable to the biblical Judas. Uh, of the rest of the administration, uh, Mack was writing, quote, I do not believe there is one honest man among them. I fear none of them wish to save the Union. They prefer ruling a separate northern confederacy, Unquote. Now, Mack had hoped that capturing Richmond would lead to a, a quick victory, followed by restoration of the Union through a negotiated peace, not necessarily involving uh, abolition. His, his defeat at the Seven Days ended any chance of that. Far from being pleased to see McClellan fail, Lincoln described himself as, quote, nearly inconsolable as I could be and live, unquote. News of the defeat led to a plunge in the stock market, and the northern abolitionists were starting to turn on Lincoln, uh, viewing his, his leadership as ineffective. European intervention seemed to grow more likely by the day. Despite the failed campaign on July 8th, McClellan took it upon himself to provide unsolicited advice to Lincoln as to the political conduct of the war. He advised the president that the war, quote, should not be looking to the subjugation of the people of any state. It should not be at all a war upon population, but against armed forces and political organizations, neither confiscation of property, political executions of persons, territorial organizations of states, or forcible abolition of slavery, should be contemplated for a moment. All private property and unarmed persons should be strictly protected. Military power should not be allowed to interfere with the relations of servitude. A declaration of radical views, especially upon slavery, will rapidly disintegrate our present armies." Unquote. So Mac wanted to fight under the uh, Marquess of Queensberry rules, but the war was rapidly turning into a no-holds-barred war barroom brawl. When it, it came to politics, he concluded that forced abolition would make, would make reunion and reconstruction nearly impossible. If the goal of the war was abolition, he warned, the Union soldiers might refuse to continue fighting. After all, they had volunteered to save the Union, not free slaves. Lincoln accepted the letter from McClellan personally, and he read it without offering any comment. His frustration with McClellan had grown to the point that he quietly offered command of the Army of the Potomac to Ambrose Burnside, uh, who turned it down, Uh, and that was partly out of uh, doubt over his, his own qualifications for the command and partly out of loyalty to his friend McClellan. At the same time, Mack began receiving letters from around the country, urging him to take the Army to Washington and depose the current administration in favor of a government that would either win the war fast or end it. Mac, uh, probably flattered by the suggestion, but not seriously considering it, informed Ellen of his receipt uh, uh, of the sedition encouraging correspondence. Ellen, ever faithful and supporting of her husband, responded, quote, "I almost wish you would march up to Washington and frighten those people a little." And that's going to wrap up part two of our series on George McClellan. Join us soon for part three, which will be the concluding show in our Portrait of McClellan. If you have any questions or comments about the show, feel free to reach us at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com, gray spelled with an E. If you want to support the show, rate or review us on iTunes. And if you're interested in alternate history, check out my guest episode of Twilight Histories, American Dictator. As always, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right.